We'll be in the book of Esther tonight. Esther chapter 8. All right, so we left off where we saw the downfall of Haman, the Jew's enemy, the Bible calls him. And there's way too much to recap. It's been a while since we've met together in the book of Esther as well. And so if you missed any of it, go back, listen, get the details, and you'll be filled in. But long story short, remember that Haman had convinced the king that there was a people within the empire scattered abroad and that they were rebellious because their laws differed from the laws of the Persians. And because of that, he said, they deserved death. Ahasuerus, the king, he's an out-of-touch leader. He doesn't investigate. He doesn't question anything. He elevates Haman to second in command. He gives him his royal ring. And that authorized Haman to make a royal decree to put all the the Jews to to death. And that was going to be in 11 months when he did that. And the king said, do to them as it seemeth good to thee. Didn't even look into it at all. Just go ahead, kill a whole whole race of people and, and whatever. And so with that approval and power, Haman issues his genocidal decree against all the Jews, all because he hated one man named Mordecai. This is so over the top here that we're, we're meant to see Satan in all of this. Mordecai refused to bow. He did not reverence Haman within the king's gate. But what Haman didn't know was that Esther the queen was also a Jew. <laughs> well, that's going to be a problem. It all came to light at that second banquet that Esther had hosted for the king and for Haman. And the king ordered Haman to be put to death on the very gallows that Haman had prepared to kill Mordecai on. <laughs> and we took note last time at how quickly things can change in just one day. One night, one day, all of this is going down. Uh, you may recall chapter 6 begins with the phrase, On that night. Remember, on that night he couldn't sleep. And the one spot he reads is where Mordecai wasn't honored for saving his life. And that began to change things. And then chapter 8 begins with the phrase, On that day. And so all this is happening real quick. And I'll, I think I mentioned this, but our world can be turned upside down in one day. Amen. Everything can change. In this account in Esther, it all takes a drastic turn in just one day. One day, Haman thinks he's going to have Mordecai killed. And the very next day, Haman is killed on those same gallows. One day, you may think you finally have everything just where you want it in life. And then the next day, everything changes. One day, you may feel like deliverance is never going to come. And then the next day, God reverses it all. We never know. Remember Proverbs 27.1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And then Matthew 6.33 and 34, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto uh, the day is the evil thereof. There's enough problems today. Don't worry about tomorrow. So is it okay to say that it's kind of humorous how Haman wanted Mordecai dead, but now all of Haman's wealth and power is transferred to the very man that he wanted to kill? I don't know if that's right to say or not, but this is all in the course of one day. Don't ever doubt God's power to deliver. Well, let's begin tonight, chapter 8. Let's read verses 3 through 17. The Bible says, And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet, 
and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred twenty and seven provinces unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. Oh man, that is a long verse. It's the longest in the Bible. That's a little fun fact for you. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by post on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, the, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went forth, and Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, in blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Amen and amen. So when Esther was first going to go before the king to make her petition on behalf of her people, remember she had called for a three-day fast. She knew the danger of going in before the king unbidden that he could have her life taken if he so felt like it. Um, but this time, she seems to have more confidence. And an and application that I see here is the more time that we spend with our king, the more bold, the more confident we become in going into his presence and appearing before him. And I'm not suggesting there comes a point where we become flippant about how we approach God or that we don't reverence Him in some way. but and, and neither should we do away with fasting, by the way. But it's okay that we get to a point where that fear begins to diminish in the sense that we're confident that we're His and that our standing with Him is secure and that 
we have a, a good relationship with Him, and, and that He wants to hear from us. Some people think that God doesn't want to hear from them. He, he died for that, that right. And, and so He wants to hear from you. And, and some have developed a fearful approach to God, as if God doesn't want to be bothered. No, He does. It's not a bother to Him. He wants to hear from you. Others have learned that God is our Heavenly Father, that He wants to hear from us, and they are the ones who learn to come boldly into His presence and understand that we do so with humility, knowing that He's going to uh, hear those who are right with Him. And so Esther doesn't call for a fast this time, but she boldly goes in before the king and she gives her petition. And guess what? She finds the king responsive to her humble entreaty. He's willing to listen, just as our Heavenly Father is. She falls down at His feet. That's a good way to approach God. And with tears, she cries out to her king, and she says, we need to put away the mischief of Haman. And in verse 4, the king accepts her presence, and he extends the golden scepter. We talked about that in the previous chapter. Esther continues by expounding in verse 5 on what she means by Haman's mischief and his device against the Jews. The king is now aware of that. Remember, he didn't really know any of that was going on. He's now aware of it because he's had more, more, or Haman put to death. And so she says, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces." And so I, I see this as it's similar to us going before our king and saying, if it be your will. He, she says, if I found favor in your sight, if this would be your will. We're taught by Christ to pray for God's will. You know, the Bible tells us that when we pray, not, what does it say? Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're to pray for God's will here on earth. If it be pleasing to thee and and things seem right before thee, let it be done. And then she adds her desire in verse 6, For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? And I believe it's proper for us to make our request um, to God, make those known, and say, God, I just want your will done this is going to be difficult for me to have to deal with this if, if you don't do something. Like, I think it's okay. It's okay to share your heart with God and, and, and just come before Him as you would your father, however your relationship is there, but you know what I mean, um, that, that you would come before somebody here. And, and so it's proper to do that. Esther basically tells the king, who is, by the way, her husband, <laughs> that the death of Haman really is of no avail because the decree is still hanging out there. And, and we're still, we're still going to die as a result of his decree. Well, in verses 7 and 8, we get Ahasuerus' response. The king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have, given Esther, uh, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. And, and here's what he says, Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. And again, we see this king who's just not doing his job. 
He's just passing the buck again. Um, so he gives Mordecai the authority to deal with Haman's decree. He says, write your own decree to counter that decree. And in the second half of verse 8, we're reminded that any time a decree is issued in Persia, it can't be reversed. This is insanity. I can imagine. And so this is why the king, he cannot grant Esther's request uh, in verse 5 to reverse the letters that Haman had devised. He said, I can't do anything about it because it's already been issued in my name. And once it's issued, it can't be reversed. And so we get the sense that the king perhaps would have reversed what Haman had done if he was able to, but he legally can't. Now, this starts getting interesting. He legally can't. The, the decree's issued. The law has to be performed. And this is why the king, uh, he can't grant this, but he's got to find another way. This is so good. Don't miss all of this. So here's this decree. The law has gone forth. The law has to be fulfilled. And the king's going to have to find another way in order to protect them, in order to deliver them. And, and so hopefully you can see where I'm going with this, because I believe here we see a type of Christ. Esther goes before the king to intercede for the deliverance of her people. The king accepts her, is moved by her humility and her heartfelt plea. The king essentially says, I cannot change my law. Therefore, to bring deliverance to the Jews, there has to be another way. Now, in, in Esther, they use law against law, which is what we're seeing here. But as we think about the way of salvation, there is a law, and it's God's law. And, and none of us are righteous enough to keep His law. None of us can keep every jot and tittle of it. And, and we cannot keep His law without trespassing it. And, and James makes it clear, if you trespass in one area, you've trespassed it. You're a trespasser at that point. And, and so the law, it brings death. Romans 7, 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. That's the law. Romans 7, 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, or the law came, sin revived, and I died. According to God's law, sin must be dealt with. That's the law. It cannot be reversed, just like the Persian law. It has to be executed. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've missed His holy requirements. And so, if we're going to receive righteousness, we have to receive it another way. <laughs> I love this. And so the only way is through Christ. God gave Christ His royal ring, if you will. And He says, this is the way that, that you can make a way for, for your people. And, and if you'll write another way of deliverance, and Jesus wrote the way of God in His own blood, and He made a way for us without the requirements of the law, in a sense. Right? And I say in a sense because God didn't re really reverse His unchangeable law. God just found another way. And, and so sin is still dealt with according to God's law, but our Lord and Savior, He, he took our penalty for our sins for us. Amen. And so Jesus could do this because He was sinless. He was spotless. He fulfilled the law. He's the perfect Lamb of God. And now we have a choice to make. We can either try to be, be delivered by keeping the law under the Old Covenant, or 
we can accept deliverance through Christ under the new covenant. And none have ever been able to keep the whole law except Christ. And that's why He's called our Savior. Colossians 1.20 And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And then Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Listen to this. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. Those laws. Blotting that out that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. He found another way. Now, he didn't have to find that, okay? It was foreordained. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but you understand what I'm saying. Now, let's consider Esther's plea in light of all this. So she requests deliverance or salvation for her people, and it's heartfelt, it's genuine, but the king makes it clear, I can't. There's a law. The law has to be fulfilled. And so God will gladly save any, but He cannot, He will not, go against His holy law. We must come to Him through faith in Christ, believing that we can't save ourselves because of our unrighteousness. You know, this is why the Bible says the law is a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster took your child to school. It is a schoolmaster to what? Bring us to Christ. And this is why once you die to the law and you come to the end of the law, who you find at the end of the law is the Lord Jesus Christ waiting there for you to save you. But the law has to bring you to that. And so this truth is so plain. Listen, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to believe, and I'm, I'm being serious here, that there are so many religious ideas who believe you can do something else to save yourself. I just don't understand it. It's so clear in God's Word. Like perhaps if you pay enough money or you pray enough or whatever. whatever work enough. Whatever the, the teaching is. Romans 9, verses 2 and 3. Um, you know, Paul said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, man, if I could, I would, but I can't. I could wish myself accursed, but it doesn't matter. I can't. Romans 10, 1 through 4, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, right? People's own law, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Listen to this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. We come to Christ and we realize He's fulfilled it. And so we go before our King. We, we rightly ask for the salvation of our people. We should be praying that. We should be praying for people to be saved. And, and, but our King... He can only save according to His Word. And His Word demands that people have to make a decision. We cannot make it for them. And that goes for our kids. We can't save them. This is the irreversible law of God. And any who try to find another way, the Bible says you're a thief and a robber. And by the way, they won't find a way in. I think this is a great application here from our text. But like I said earlier, instead of the Jews finding grace, they're having to fight law with law. Thank God we don't have to do that in Christ because we would never be good enough. And so 
when we think about this people having to fight law with law, I think this is very indicative of a people who are outside of the will of God because this is what people do today. Those who are outside the will of God, they're, they're fighting God's law with their own law. And, and that's what we see here. Just think of some of the religions today and how they do the same thing. The Catholics are using their law, their catechisms, to override God's law. They're saying that this is more authoritative than the Word of God. What? That's what happens when you're outside the will of God. The Seventh-day Adventists use their law to override God's law. The JWs are using their law. The Mormons use their Second Testament of Christ. They're overruling God's law. And that's what happens when you find yourself outside of the will of God. I promise you, anybody in here that finds himself out of the will of God, at some point it's going to be law against law. And it's, it's going to be some kind of what somebody did to you or, or I've got to do this in order for God to be pleased with me. It's going to be something like that instead of trusting the Word of God, trusting His grace. It's going to turn into some kind of law, some kind of religious keeping, some kind of observance. And I could give you all kinds of examples through, through those religions. But listen, I want you to understand, this can show up in individuals even in churches like ours. We're not immune to it as independent Baptists. Some believe they have to appease God by keeping the various requirements they came up with. Amen. It's not in the Bible. Their law is not in the Bible, but they convince themselves that it is. And in essence, what they're doing is they're frustrating the grace of God. I see it all the time. Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For, as, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Right. <laughs> if I've got to keep my own law to get righteousness, then why did Christ die? Yeah, right. and, and so what a lot of people do, they get sideways with God, they start quoting their own law. Or they get sideways with a church or a preacher. Amen. Yeah. You know, they, they come up with their own, their, their own idea of what a law is. And it's not in the Bible. So those who know their position in Christ and understand that Christ is the end of the law, they rest in the peace of God's grace. And I'm not talking about a license to sin. All right? I'm not talking about that. But in understanding that our Lord's yoke is easy. His burden is light. Well, I'm not going to reread verses 9 through 14 for sake of time, but that's what I put in my notes. So we're just going to pretend like we read it, okay? <laughs> so... Mordecai, he's able to write this, this decree. So the new decree allowed the Jews to defend themselves against any who decided to use Haman's decree to kill any Jews and take of their property. Both decrees contain similar language, almost identical. In Esther 3.13, Haman's decree mentions how they could destroy, kill, and cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, and take the spoil of them for a prey. And here in verse 11, we find almost identical language. It says, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. And so there's two, two decrees at odds here. You've got Haman's decree. You've got Mordecai's decree. The difference was Haman's decree was on the offensive. It was being aggressors. It was being uh, the ones picking the fight. And, and even though Mordecai's decree authorized the Jews to spoil any who, who came against whoever they might have had to defend themselves against, what we'll find in the next chapter is that none of them did. None of them took of the spoils of, of those that came against them. So once the new decree was written and sealed, it's hastened throughout the empire by all the means available. 
So they've, they've got the new decree, <laughs> and they hasten it throughout the empire, which was much of the world at that point, from India to Ethiopia. And, and so they, they hasten throughout the 127 provinces. And can you imagine the response of the Jews to learn that another way had been made? Uh, just imagine how they would have felt. Now the king is on their side. <laughs> and, and so what a joy when I learned that the, the decree of death against me was removed by the king of kings. Amen. Because he willingly and joyfully made a way for me to be delivered. All I had to do was take God at his word. And now the king is on my side. What a thought. And the king was now on their side. So what we need to do as a church is we need to carry the, the good news, the message, the gospel of Christ, the new covenant. And we need to speedily carry that throughout the world by every means available. That's what they did here. There was a new law. There was a new covenant. And that was carried throughout the entire empire speedily. And that's what we need to do. Amen. We need to keep carrying the, God's word throughout. And along the way, we trust that there will be those who will be joyful as the Jews were to hear. What? There's another way? And, and that's what we, we know that there will be those along the way that are excited to receive the new decree, the one that overrides, if you will, the law. And, and we can be saved by grace. And, and so what a thought. And so we'll close out this chapter, verses 15 through 17. And I want to draw your attention. There's another contrast in these verses between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between Haman and Mordecai. Uh, we see uh, under this new decree in verse 16 that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The word light here, it is figurative way of saying prosperity. They were being blessed. Um, the word honor means they had dignity. And so remember what the mood was under Haman's decree. When Haman issued his decree, the Bible says in Esther 4.3 that there was great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting, there was weeping, there was wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so we see the contrast between these two decrees. And, and I want you to pick up on the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and so under the first decree, there was mourning and weeping and a feeling of hopelessness. Under the second decree, there was light, gladness, joy, and honor. And that's how it is with us. That's how it was with us, perhaps. Under the old, under the old covenant, there is the knowledge of our helpless condition. We cannot deliver ourselves. And, and there's knowledge of that. And then we quickly uh, realize we cannot keep God's law. Yeah. And it causes that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. But under the new covenant... Our sins are removed. Amen. Uh, Christ takes them away through His blood. And what do we experience? Light, gladness, joy, and honor. And He prospers our way with the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. And not necessarily He prospers your way with all of Haman's riches, but He prospers your way with these fruits, uh, this fruit of the Spirit. It's actually just singular fruit of the Spirit for all of them. But, um, and, and so He gives us this fruit of the Spirit. He restores our dignity how does God give us honor and restore our dignity? He takes our sins away. Amen. We're clean. We're a new creature. And so we have honor again. And of course, we have joy and gladness if you're saved. <laughs> Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, 
but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what Christians should have. Also notice under the first decree, Mordecai, he, he rent his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. But under the second decree, Mordecai is arrayed in royal apparel. <laughs> this is so awesome. The old covenant, we sat in the rags of our sins. Once I was clothed in the rags of my sin. Amen. And then what happened? We became a child of the king. Under the new covenant, we are now robed in the righteousness of Christ. (laughs) Awesome. Now, isn't it interesting? There's so much joy and gladness. Get this now. There's all this joy, this gladness, and yet the battle is still coming. The decree hasn't stopped. It's It's still in effect. There's just now a way to defend themselves. And so the battle is, they still got to face this battle. But before there was mourning and weeping and wailing, and now there's peace and joy. Listen, this is what happens when we enter into the new covenant. Uh, We still face battles. Life still comes at you. Life's still difficult at times. There's still mountains to climb and all the rest. But we can have joy and gladness as we go through those things knowing that we have the king on our side and that we have his favor. And because the king was on their side, we see at the end of verse 17 how the fear of the Jews fell upon them. People were seeing how Mordecai had now been elevated, how the king had honored him, and how many began to side with the Jews. There's still going to be some who attack them. We'll see that in the, in the next chapter. But overall, the empire now views the Jews in a different light. And it's causing the Jews to be feared throughout the land. And and you may not agree with this because at times it feels like uh, this isn't true. But I want you to know that there's a fear of God's people around the world. There is. Why do you think the regimes that are, are so wicked are suppressing the Christians? There's a fear there. I don't even know if they recognize it that way. But but we see that these oppressive oppressive regimes that are trying to silence believers. We're starting to see it here. And and so shortly before the children of Israel were about to cross over into the land, we read in Deuteronomy 11.25, There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon as he has said unto you. And so... If the enemies of God could, they would take us out. What's holding them back? Even in America, they would rid themselves of Christians if they could. What do you think standing against them and and their wicked policies and their progressive agendas and and all the rest? It's people like us. And, And so they would get rid of us if they could, but I'm telling you, there's a fear. And it's a hidden fear. I don't believe in God, yet... I don't know that I want to attack God's people. Why? Because it might be true. And if it is, I'm in a world of trouble. There's a fear there. And that fear is wearing off more and more as America departs from God. I mean, that's what's going to lead to it. Um, But it's still going to be there to some degree. Um, But it'll continue to fade as we near the end. And we've got to be close to the Lord's return. Last thing tonight, we see in verse 17 how many of the people of the land became Jews. Now, I don't know how genuine that was. Could have just been people converting, you know. 
um, to Judaism, but we see the impact of their joy and gladness. <laughs> um, first, they saw the demise of Haman, the, the Jews' enemy, and, and so they knew not to come against the Jews. But also, and, and here's, here's the application, they saw their joy, the Jews' joy and gladness. And it attracted people. It attracted people. When there's joy and there's gladness, people are drawn to that. I think we're going to see this even more and more as we are in these last days. And people are seeking for truth and what's real and, and all the rest. As Christians, we ought to be joyful. To the point that it's noticeable. Amen. It ought to be noticeable. Your heart needs to tell your face. If it's real, if your peace and your joy, if, if it's real, it'll be infectious. It'll be infectious. And others will want what we have. And that's a relationship with God through Christ. So this is a great chapter. Amen. It's a chapter of contrast. And we see the contrast between Haman's decree and Mordecai's decree. But I think the, the greater picture for us is how we see a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so this is a chapter of reversals. And, and isn't that what Christ does for us? He takes the law that was against us and He changes it. And He says, here's my grace. Here's my mercy. All you got to do is receive the free gift of salvation. So what a joy to be under the New Covenant when that old curse is removed from us. Amen? All right, let's pray.